We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Gavin is out today, uh, but keeping me company in studio is Michael Turton, who's becoming something of a frequent contributor, third time this month. Uh, he is the man behind the much-esteemed uh, The View from Taiwan blog, which I refer to quite frequently. Uh, Michael, thanks for coming in. Thanks for the invitation. And by phone, we've got Taipei-based contract reporter Ralph Jennings. Ralph, uh, good to have you back on as well. Thanks for having me again. On the show today, uh, we've got politics as far as the eye can see, mostly domestics, but uh, got a few imports as well. In the first half, we'll take a look at this week in legislative mischief as a glut of KMT-proposed budget motions gummed up the works at the Legislative Yuan. Uh, and also frustrated progress for this extraordinary session that we are still sort of in. Uh, but not before the DPP managed to achieve one of their chief goals for the session. That was passing a party assets bill that could potentially strip the KMT of much of its massive war chest. Uh, this is something we've been talking about on the show all year, so we'll be spending some time on that one for sure. Then in the second half... We're going to bip on over to the South China Sea because, you know, why not? We've almost filled out our punch card. Uh, I think uh, if we get one more, we uh, also get a free water bottle uh, from the island. So uh, trying to rack those up. Then we'll be taking a deep dive into cross-strait tourism uh, as last week's tragic tour bus fire is pushing many to rethink the merits of the industry. Uh, but first, we've got two quick little notes to go through. Uh, it was not your imagination this week was a scorcher near record-breaking temperatures, at least in Taipei. Uh, just to notch that one off real quick, temperatures in Taipei soared to 38.5 degrees Celsius uh, on Wednesday, just after 1 p.m., making it the second highest ever temperature recorded in the month of July. The highest ever would have been back in 2010. Uh, I believe. Well, you're 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 from Taichung, Michael. So yeah. was it a little bit better in Taichung? It's always better in Taichung. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into that one. I walked into that. You, you, uh, in addition to being uh, a proponent of many causes in 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 Taiwan, you were also a proponent of Taichung love. I think it would be fair to say. That's right. All right, uh, Ralph. Did you feel the heat this week? I did. I had to go out every day at about three o'clock, which was probably when you're not supposed to be going out at all because of the heat. So I certainly felt it. Yeah. So uh, tough on everybody this week. Uh, we've just been kind of racking up uh, record temperatures left and right all summer. Uh, some fear, of course, that it's putting a strain on utilities and energy consumption. Others are saying those fears are overblown, as we've kind of discussed on the show before. But uh, the summer, still not even really halfway through. So uh, I'm sure that we're going to be hearing uh, more about this. Uh, but I got another quick update that I want to uh, foist upon everybody, so we are going to move on. Uh, we can now close the book on a very dark incident that occurred last year uh, because the Supreme Court yesterday upheld a guilty verdict for Kwa Yanchun, uh, meaning that he is going to serve a 12-year jail term. Uh, he was uh, the man who carried out a knife attack at a Taipei mass rapid transit station last year. Uh, so he has now been convicted of attempted murder uh, after he uh, stabbed several people with a kitchen knife. Uh, this all took place at Zhongzheng MRT station for many in Taiwan, brought back uh, very chilling memories 
of the uh, deadly attack by uh, Zheng Jia back in 2014 uh, that left four people dead that was actually on an MRT car. Um, so the, the, the jail time uh, is now kind of a done deal, uh, and we can stop saying these guys' names because we've certainly said them too many times already. Uh, and hopefully, hope for uh, uh, quite a, a stretch of time without any similar news uh, coming upon us. All right, uh, so those two quick updates are done, and we are going to head back to politics. Endless, endless politics. <laughs> it's fair to say lawmakers uh, and their staff uh, proved just how hardworking they are this week, uh, but perhaps their energies could have been put to better use. Just maybe. I'll leave that up to uh, our two commentators this week. This week, uh, the extraordinary session ground to a halt when, uh, and I'm going to do my best to explain exactly what happened, but, uh, you know, uh, legislative rules and procedures are not my strong point, so uh, I'll, I'll leave it to the commentators to correct me where corrections are needed. Anyway, they ground to a halt when the KMT uh, introduced m- more than 1,600 different proposals uh, on state-owned business budget proposals. Putting me to sleep just talking about it, but that was kind of the point, depending on who you ask. Uh, the EPP says the move uh, was basically an obstructionist move to make everything grind to a halt uh, and was taken in retaliation for uh, the party assets bill that was passed earlier this week. Uh, KMT, some have kind of winkingly acknowledged that charge. Others are saying, no, 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 we were just being thorough. That's our job as the opposition party. Got to review things thoroughly. No problem if, you know, the review process takes a little bit of extra time. The DPP responded to uh, the glut of proposals uh, by proposing their own marathon review session. Uh, Originally, the plan was to go all the way to midnight tonight, Friday, didn't last quite that long uh, because, you know, while the, the will was strong, I guess the body was somewhat weaker and uh, a female clerk ended up collapsing Wednesday night. So uh, they temporarily adjourned the whole thing. Uh, recriminations were thrown back and forth over the incident. You know, it's your fault that we're here all night. It's your fault that we're here all night. Uh, the rest of us just went, man, legislation is boring. Uh, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's a, Let's oh, go to a KTV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's just go to a KTV. I don't really want to watch people voting for five days straight. Um, they had there, there was something of a little bit of a breakthrough yesterday. Both caucuses agreed uh, to minor compromises. Uh, they retracted repeat motions, similar motions, so there were fewer laws to review. Uh, and uh, they also uh, agreed to limit the number of votes to some degree. Uh, so, you know, they're still in the process of reviewing all of these proposals. Uh, but uh, what we're probably going to end up seeing is they're not going to be able to finish it and they're going to have to pick it up in September. Uh, did I do okay on that? Is there anything we got to add there? Nope. Sounds great. Woo! Uh, uh, Ralph, uh, and, and anything we got to correct there? It sounds good to me. I, I would only say this kind of thing has happened before. And not only in Taiwan. This is classic behavior toward the end of a session or toward the approval of a budget for many democratic countries. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so let's kind of get to, I mean, you know, this, this is out of 
a number of textbooks in how you can uh, gain some advantages in in a legislative uh, system. But let's get a little bit even more specific in terms of what was motivating the two parties uh, throughout this whole ordeal. Uh, Michael, what's your take? What was behind the KMT's move? What was behind the DPP response? Well, you know me, it looks like obstruction to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the legislature has been dysfunctional now, as long as I've been in Taiwan, which I, th- I think began in the Qing dynasty. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Qing dynasty in the late 80s. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a lot of great albums he released at the time. I think, <laughs> I think it's, a good, uh, it's a good example of where uh, reform is needed. Mm-hmm. Not only not only can you pa- can not only can you send so many bills down, but the legislature set up so very small caucuses can completely block progress. Right. So it's a good example of the way that the former ruling party arranged things so that there would never be any institution within the government that could challenge the power of the party, mm-hmm. and that's something that's going to have to be cleaned up by the DPP over the next couple next few years. Right, and I'm, I mean, I think a lot of observers are noting that the, the strategies that the KMT is using right now look an awful lot like uh, the DPP playbook. They were taught well. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, Ralph, uh, do you do you have a similar take? Um, yeah, it certainly looks like obstruction. Again, I go back to what I mentioned earlier, which is that in a divided legislature anywhere, the party that's not in power will try to obstruct the one that is. And um, when the when the because the budget itself is so sensitive. It, it touches on everyone's priorities. Um, the legislators are almost obligated to their constituents and to their party to go fight for what they want and to knock down what they don't want. Mm. Are we in, though, I mean, a moment of uh, real slash-and-burn politics, just, scor- I guess the term would be scorched-earth politics, where it, it, it's really seen as a zero-sum game, uh, your party gets what it wants, therefore we lose. My party gets what we want, therefore you lose. Uh, I, 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 I mean, is, is this the kind of confrontation we should expect going forward? That's a good question. I, I can imagine that if the senior legislators probably understand that at the end of the day, this, this overnight session or whatever it turns into will just be for show, and they know at the end of the day what they're going to do and, and where they're willing to compromise. I don't know... How to what degree um, the KMT minority will get what it wants because it's a rather small minority, and this is the first time that the DPP has had a majority. Um, so how much will they get and how much will the DPP concede? I can't really tell yet. Mm. Uh, Michael, what's your take? Well, I think, um, I think Ralph was entirely correct, and I'd just like to add that uh, playing with the budget actually affects the state agencies and state businesses, which are populated by KMT voters. Mm-hmm. So in the end, the KMT will have to make compromises that will get them, those agencies the money they need. Mm. Do, do, do you think that this was a particularly strident episode because of uh, the passage of the assets bill, or, or is it likely that we would have seen something like this anyway? I think it's likely we would have seen something like this anyway, yeah. Mm. All right. So that is uh, the moment of politics that we're in. Uh, so anyway, so that was the dramatic voting in the legislative yuan. Uh, But the dramatic vote happened a bit earlier in the week uh, with the passage of the act governing the handling of ill-gotten properties by political parties and their affiliate organizations. A bit of a mouthful in English. I think the Chinese is a little bit more elegant. Basically, uh, that is a motion that is dealing with the question of what to do with the quote-unquote ill-gotten KMT party assets. 
the bill that was arrived at on Monday has been denounced by KMT Legislative Caucus Whip Lin Defu as the darkest day in Taiwan's democratic history. So uh, quite a uh, user review right there. Uh, let's hear what it actually does, though. I'm, I'm, I'm taking this description uh, from the Taipei Times. I've seen somewhat dissimilar descriptions elsewhere, so you guys can uh, add to this if it feels incomplete. The Taipei Times reports that the bill states that all properties obtained by political parties after 1945, not including membership, fees, and political donations, are to be considered illegal and must be returned to the state. Uh, so uh, a fairly uh, sweeping bill right there. Uh, as I said, uh, many in the KMT are denouncing it. Hong Shouju, uh, for one, is uh, denouncing it. She's uh, kind of pledging a constitutional interpretation. They're going to be try to get the uh, constitutional court involved uh, in all of this. Let's just start with uh, what the bill uh, actually does and uh, how it stacks up to other potential bills that the KMT could have passed. Uh, Michael, this seems to me to be fairly sweeping. Uh, was there a more watered-down version that this could have taken, or, 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 or was this what it was going to look like all along? I always thought this was what it was going to look like all along. Mm-hmm. There would be a long period of compromise. Uh, I thought they wouldn't be able to get uh, a lot of what they wanted, the mm-hmm. EPP, I mean. And... Um, so I think what we're what we're seeing here, the KMT has a year, mm-hmm. and uh, the law fortunately does contain some language that says that properties that are sold off mm-hmm. can be seized. Mm. So if the KMT tries to dump assets, then they can be uh, seized under this act. Right. So 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 that would kind of prevent the scenario where you know they have a year to get rid of all this stuff, uh, but instead of transferring it to the state, they're going to try to get rid of it in other ways. Well, yeah, that's what they said. They were going to sell it all and give the money to charity. Right. That That's kind of uh, KMT chairwoman's counterproposal. Right. But you know what charities it would go to. Right. So that's part of one thing that's good about the law is that it goes after the affiliated organizations, the KMT's mm-hmm. youth groups and all those things that are funded by party funds and are budgeted from the party. Mm. Uh, Ralph, uh, did, were, were, were you surprised at all by the form that this uh, bill took, or was that more or less what you were expecting? I didn't have a strong expectation for how it would look, because, as you know, the issue has been talked about over a number of years when the DPP was a legislative minority, and I wasn't clear exactly how they would do it, and as Michael mentioned, a lot of the assets in question have been sold off, um, so how indeed do you get that back? Um, so the bill would appear, in terms of its um, sweeping content, to do what it's supposed to do. Mm. The question becomes, what happens if the KMT says these are, in fact, not our assets, and we've sold them off, we have no connection to them, you can't prove it was ours. If they want to make a court case out of it, then this whole thing is going to end up in a court. Mm-hmm. And oh, for sure. is the DPP or somebody to it um, or the government going to push it in court and how long is that going to go on for and what sort of results should we expect and Michael mentioned earlier that a lot of government agencies are are KMT supporter top heavy Um, (laughs) you know look at the court so what do you think might happen yeah well let's uh, let's kind of even pry a little bit deeper into that and uh, just the absolute complexity 
uh, that we are going to see here. Uh, Michael, you mentioned a second ago uh, the w- you know the dependent organizations that are also going to be affected by this law. Yeah. So basically, what we're talking about is. Uh, charitable organizations or, or, or organizations that have some kind of KMT affiliation or used to have a KMT affiliation uh, now don't have any official affiliation but perhaps have benefited from a relationship with the KMT over the years. And some organizations, it's estimated, uh, have reaped the benefits uh, to the tune of millions uh, or I think in some cases even billions of NT um, and 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 those are going to be investigated as well. Those funds. So, I mean, that just seems like an absolute headache piecing together what is legitimate funding. Because 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 we're not. It's not like there's one bank account that uh, investigators <laughs> can go to and be like, oh, that bit's okay. That bit's not okay. We're talking about property. We're talking about illiquid assets. We're talking about you know stocks and bonds. Uh, scattered all across Taiwan in accounts, in some cases, all over the world, uh, behind, you know, shell corporations, the whole works. Uh, How do I I mean, this is just kind of adding on to what Ralph is saying. This is going to be very complicated, messy process. Yes. And uh, I think the KMT is going to try to head it off by taking everything to the constitutional court, Mm -hmm. as the the chair was saying. They need one third of the legislature to do that. And... um, that's 38 votes, and there's only 35 KMT legislators, and mm-hmm. only 31 of them voted for the bill. So there's some internal dissension within the KMT about what to do about this bill. So at the moment, in order to get this for under constitutional review, mm. they need the help of another party. Mm-hmm. Let's let okay. Now let's put aside all that complexity. Let's say that this does move forward uh, to some extent. What do you think will be the uh, prime impact of this law? <laughs> How does that affect? Because what the what the DPP is saying is that this is going to level the playing field and normalize the KMT as a party. Uh, do do you see that as a possibility? I don't think the KMT can normalize as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what it will happen is convince the patronage networks of the KMT in the local areas that they should probably switch their allegiance to the DPP. Mm. That that seems like a somewhat pessimistic view. That does not sound like uh, good old democracy functioning as... <laughs> that is democracy as it's supposed to function. <laughs> uh, you, 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 you scratch sw- my back, I scratch yours. <laughs> okay, you, you, you bet for the winning team, all right. Hey, I lived, I lived next door to New Jersey once, so I know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's where all the democracy textbooks are written, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, Ralph, uh, what, what do you see going forward? I still expect that the KMT is going to hold out in whatever way it can, having dumped a, uh, a lot of these assets already if the media reports are to be believed. So we have to presume that the party might not simply follow the laws it's supposed to and hand everything over or declare everything. <gasps> no. So it's going to go to court, and I still want to know who's going to take it to court, um, who's going to, how long the cases will play out and what the results will be. And um, if we look at other, I I can't help thinking back on the Chen Shui-bian trials and the only relation being that they were immensely complex Mm. and they went on for a long time and they were really hard to figure out. Yes. Um, And in the end, Chen was acquitted three times of of stealing state assets. uh, Yeah, and there were multiple (laughs) charges against him and I believe his his, uh, prison sentence was Related to only one of them. Yeah, two of so them, I think. This, this stuff is not easy, and especially, mm. as you mentioned earlier, there are 
bonds and property and all these other assets floating all over Taiwan. So good luck. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, closing question that I want to put to both of you is uh, it, it, it does seem like we're seeing somewhat uh, disparate responses within the KMT. Uh, on the one hand, we have uh, you know, this is the darkest chapter in, in Taiwan's democracy. Uh, and then on the other hand, we have reports that some uh, in the KMT are actually kind of relieved because they just want to get this issue over with uh, and get past uh, all of these asset issues. Uh, how do we uh, expect the KMT internally to react to this? Is uh, Are the Hongshou Jews, you know, this is a dark chapter sort of stuff, is, is that going to hold the day? I can't see it. I I. I hate to be, well, I hate to be too cynical about things, but I really... Oh, no, you don't. Come on, Ralph. Okay, okay, let, let me be as cynical as I can. The Taiwanese don't care. Mm. This, is, this is not a hot burner issue. Mm. Uh, the, the average public out there might have some idea of what the ill-gotten assets mean and, and what this is all about, but this is done. The people that, uh, are, are living their lives and they expect things, good things to happen in the future... They're looking at the party in power now for some some economic guidance, for some China policy, and you know, going after the, the the past is it's not the wrong thing to do in their minds, but it just doesn't sell anymore. Mm. Uh, Michael, do you agree with that? I don't know. Uh, the polls show strong public support for the assets for the Campy Assets Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, as I said uh, last time on this show, one of the things that Tsai has to manage is this transition, this post-colonial transition away from KMT rule. Mm-hmm. And this is part of that. The party has to be seen to be formally doing something about this. Mm. And the KMT assets bill has been something that's been talked about for, you know, three decades, basically. Mm. So, is, is this likely where transitional justice is going to end, though? No. And, and if you ask me what trans- transitional justice means, I can't tell you. Mm. No one's been able to define this. Right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think we're, uh, as we often do, ending this conversation with uh, more question marks than uh, with uh, answers, periods. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the correct thing to follow that up with. But anyway, a lot of questions remain. Uh, but we're going to have to wrap up the whole first half of the show right there. Uh, when we return, we are heading back to the South China Sea just for a bit. Uh, then we'll be going on a tour of the cross-strait tourism industry. No refunds, no complaining. You've been warned. It's not a fun tour, but it is an... We'll learn a lot anyway. (laughs) All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Michael Turton and Ralph Jennings. Going back to the South China Sea now, uh, and we are following in the footsteps... I guess, well, of a fleet of Taiwan's fishermen. (laughs) I guess we're following in their wake. That would be the appropriate way to put it. Ten crew members of three Taiwanese fishing boats uh, set foot not on Taiping Island itself, uh, but instead they visited the port uh, on Taiping Island. This is all kind of the follow-up reaction to uh, the South China Sea ruling a number of weeks ago. Uh, And... Basically, this is just getting into a different angle of this whole thing, uh, being that the uh, the fishermen are very concerned about their fishing rights in the region. Uh, of course, as we've discussed before on the show, the International Court of Arbitration in The Hague uh, ruled that Taiping Island is a mere rock, limiting the territorial waters that uh, can be claimed around it 
uh, throwing up into some question uh, where Taiwan's fishing fleet can go and fish and prosper. Uh, So that's how this all kind of came back into the news this week. It was kind of interesting because before they got there, uh, the Tsai administration was warning them that, you know, this is a military area. You can't actually set foot on the island without filling out the proper uh, paperwork 45 days in advance. Um, (laughs) And this got all politicized very fast, actually. Um, There were calls for one executive UN spokesman to step down uh, because of comments that he made that uh, some in the KMT saw as uh, not supportive enough of the fishermen. Uh, we don't, I don't know, I, you know, your, 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 your take is as good as mine. Uh, I'm not really interested in getting too much into that question, but uh, more what interests me here is uh, the way that this has uh, sort of formed its own political fault lines within Taiwan. Uh, but I'll toss things over to Michael. Uh, what did you take away from this whole episode? Well, it's, it just looks like posturing to me. Uh, Either the either the uh, either Taiwan has those waters or they're in the Philippines EEZ, mm-hmm. and Taiwan fishing boats have been fishing in the Philippines EEZ now for decades. Mm. So they, we've got. I, I looked it up. We have over twenty thousand fishing boats operating in the South China Sea, which is nothing. China, Philippines, and Vietnam have over a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. The fishing take is two to three billion U.S. dollars each year. So that isn't going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is going to have any big effect on fishing in the SCS for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Like you said, maybe not you know big practical economic effects, but perhaps uh, practical political effects. I mean, is this a constituency that uh, the KMT could make matter? Yeah, it always has matters. It's it's always has mattered. Sorry, the uh, the fishing cooperatives are important in, mm-hmm. in uh, they're important sources of, of money and votes for their members and for people connected to them, mm-hmm. and uh, so they count they they punch above their weight, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Politically, uh, for me, this this the the real threat to Taiwan fishing is overfishing in the South China Sea. That mm-hmm. all the stocks are heavily exploited. Mm. Some of them are way overexploited. Mm-hmm. So this ruling is actually looks like it's going to prevent uh, more agreement on what to do about overfishing in the South China Sea. To that extent, it's a problem for Taiwan. Mm. Uh, and uh, Tsai Ing-wen also recently uh, accepted. An interview with the Washington Post that uh, also got a number of headlines. Uh, you're, you're, you're already chuckling. She, she mentioned uh, the South China Sea in that interview. Uh, did any of her comments interest you? Did they tell you anything about uh, the dispute there? Well, the interesting thing to me was when I went through the interview, it was obvious the interview had, had hurriedly boned up on Taiwan before she gave the interview. And, uh, when it got to, and so all of her questions were kind of partly informed or ill-informed. And they, and when I got to this SCS thing, suddenly there's this long, well-informed question. And my, my first response was, come on, they fed her this question. Mm. They wanted her to ask a question on the South China Sea so that Tsai Ing-wen could again, could again say, we don't accept this ruling. Mm-hmm. And this is playing to the Tsai's domestic audience, and this has strong support in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, if she's seen as weak on the issue, if the KMT succeeds in uh, portraying her as weak on the issue, that would be a political loss. I, I would agree. Uh uh, to the editors of the Washington Post, those were the comments of Michael Turton. Uh, you you will receive my uh, resume for employment shortly. Uh, don't 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 take this uh, particular interview into consideration. Keith and I don't correspond socially. Okay, we don't know each other at all. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ralph, uh, is there anything you would add to that analysis regarding the fishing boats? Perhaps the government was caught off guard by how passionate some people in Taiwan 
are about the South China Sea issue. And it caught me off guard, too, because when you talk to everyday people, it doesn't come up that much. But I, I think that over the past half year, maybe more than that, the Ma government made it a big issue. He went there himself. Uh, he sent a group of journalists there. He, he put it on the agenda. And then the, uh, the World Arbitration Court put it back on the agenda. And I think finally it started to get under some people's skin here. Uh, the fishing boats, as, as Michael mentioned, they're a powerful force in the South China Sea. So it's no, not too surprising that five of them, um, I thought maybe even more would do it, but five of them set, set out and um, got to the island, even though they couldn't get onto it. Um, and I, I'm not sure that uh, the government was expecting people to take that matter in their own hands and go do that. So perhaps that explains why her original comments were cautionary and set off this political debate in Taipei. Mm. All right. Uh, before we close out this section, I just want to kind of broaden the, uh, the conversation to the uh, broader security situation in the South China Sea. Uh, we heard uh, recently that Russia and China are planning uh, joint military operations in the South China Sea. Uh, but still, I mean, I think what some people were expecting was uh, China to uh, respond in an even uh, more muscular way to the ruling. Uh, you know, one possibility would have been for them to declare an ADIZ, an air defense identification zone, over the region, much as they did in the East China Sea. Uh, you know, that caused huge problems, huge headaches for, uh, you know, uh, international policymakers. Uh, the fact that they haven't followed a, a, a route like that, I mean, does that mean that we're in a relatively good uh, scenario? I mean, is this is this maybe not a best-case scenario, but an okay-case scenario that we're in right now? Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts? I think it's—I um, I don't think—China doesn't like to take irrevocable steps like an ADIZ. Mm-hmm. I never—actually, I, actually, I never thought China would respond strongly to this ruling mm-hmm. because they don't need to. They already—they're already physically occupying the sea. Mm. So, what it doesn't mean anything to them, basically. The facts on the ground are with yeah, the them. The facts on the ground are with them. Uh, would you agree with that, Ralph? I think the the China Russia exercise won't do much if if we're going back to that. I'm not quite sure I understood the the full upshot of your question, but if it's about the the China naval exercise with the Russians, to me that's just, that's pro forma. Adiz. Um, if they do it, that would be pro forma as well. They wouldn't enforce it, just like they didn't enforce the one over the East China Sea. Right. Um, you know, China will will turn the tap on and off in terms of military strength displays, and then when the tap is off, it will go and negotiate with ASEAN or some of the individual other countries who claim parts of the sea. And, and you know, and whether it's on or off will depend on whether it needs to prove something to the United States, if, if nobody else, because the U.S. can always come in and back up these smaller countries militarily. Mm, right. And he's got to play to, and she's got to play to his domestic audiences as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the most important driver of events from the Chinese point of view. Mm. All right. So we are going to round out that segment right there. But I am told that, uh, Ralph, you actually have to run right now. So we're going to say goodbye to you uh, before we move on. Uh, anyway, once again, uh, Ralph Jennings, thanks for being here this evening. Thank you, Keith. All right, and now uh, we move on to our final story for this evening. Last up, uh, the plan is to have an in-depth conversation on cross-strait tourism, and that is just what we're going to do. Of course, last week's uh, tragic tour bus fire killed 26 people 
uh, and has brought the cross-strait tourism industry back into the national conversation, uh, especially following allegations that China has been limiting the flow of tourists uh, as a way of signaling its displeasure with the Tsai administration. So perhaps a moment of reckoning and reflection for an industry that is touted by many as the clearest sign of warming cross-strait ties. Uh, To get a better sense of how this industry uh, has acted in practice and what's changing now, uh, I spoke recently to Dr. Ian Rowan. He is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Institute of Ethnology at Academia Sinica uh, and has focused a great deal of his research on the cross-strait tourism industry. Here's our conversation. Dr. Ian Rowan, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Keith. So I think a lot of people are expecting last week's bus tragedy to prompt some kind of reflection on the industry. I mean, we've already seen uh, increased inspections, particularly of buses. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, we heard about a a number of buses failing inspections, uh, mostly for electrical issues. Uh, But you are also expecting reflection, and it sounds like the kind of reflection uh, that you're expecting uh, would not just be limited to uh, safety concerns. It sounds like uh, you're expecting something a lot broader than that. Sure. Well, you know, the, the bus crash is an absolute tragedy. There, there's really no excuse that something like that would happen. But I think it's symptomatic of a much larger problem. And that's that the tourism industry grew in Taiwan with really minimal regulation and with very questionable political motives. Uh, I think a lot of people in Taiwan haven't really enjoyed the gains uh, from tourism that had been promised by the previous administration. And I think a lot of the tourists even have been very disappointed uh, by the quality of services they've received. And I say that having traveled with Chinese tourists all over Taiwan, uh, joined them on the buses, um, you know, fortunately got out alive, um, and then also seen them in various tourist sites in Sun Moon Lake, Kunding, and so on, and these kinds of places that many Taiwanese don't even want to go anymore because they've been overcrowded. So that's something we were seeing up until, you know, even early this spring. But the real crisis is not just these these tragic accidents, um, but also that tourism numbers have been dropping in ways that Taiwan can't really predict or control. Uh, It it appears that China's government has put the brakes on the entire enterprise, particularly group tourism, after Taiwan was elected, kind of as a way to punish her and the electorate uh, for for taking a different political line. Uh, So... This is, this is causing something of a crisis, uh, particularly for hotels, for drivers, and so on. Uh, I, I think not for the average Taiwanese person who might actually be enjoying a little more breathing room in some of these sites, but it, it, it will actually uh, probably cause a reorientation of the whole industry, you know, perhaps towards different kinds of tourists, uh, not Chinese group tourists, maybe independent tourists, but also tourists from other countries um, nearby, you know, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, uh, and so on, uh, to kind of make up for that gap. Mm. Let's dig into one of the things that you just said there a second ago, that uh, China is perhaps cutting back on the number of tourists that it's allowing to visit Taiwan. Uh, of course, China's Taiwan Affairs Office uh, is denying that any cuts are going on. So most of what we have uh, is really just the anecdotal evidence, uh, you know, the observation that there are far fewer group tours uh, in various places around Taiwan than there were at a similar time last year. Uh, how much can we really say for sure at this point? Sure. Well, the TAO uh, absolutely denied it, uh, and they, they, they pinned the change on the, the wishes and desires of tourists who didn't want to come to a country that might not uh, support their geopolitical plans. 
I, I think that's um, a, a very unbelievable claim. Uh, and there's enough anecdotal evidence, and, and I've heard even directly from tourists. For example, the other day I was out in Xiaoxi, a hot spring town near Taipei, uh, in Yilan, uh, and some tourists came and actually came to speak to me. I didn't even need to go to, to go actively do any research, and they just wanted to chat by a juice stand, you know, ask where I was from and so on. Um, and they were group tourists, and I asked them uh, if they had any trouble coming over, and they said quite clearly that their travel agent told them that they should come now, that it was getting increasingly difficult to come here, and the travel agents themselves told them that it was because there was a directive from on high. That, uh, they actually pinned this on Xi Jinping himself, saying that he didn't like the new president and therefore was clamping down on permits. So, sure, that's just one more anecdote, but it's, it's an anecdote among hundreds of them, uh, from travel agents, from tourists, uh, and, and tour guides and so on, that seems to tell a, a, an overall story that, that these cuts have been, implicated, have been uh, implemented uh, as sort of an overall policy measure. Mm. And, uh, you know, with all of those political overtones to those issues that you're talking about there, uh, that really does come in sharp contrast to the way that this policy was discussed uh, a number of years ago at the beginning of the Ma administration, uh, where this was seen as a non-political way to step up uh, cross-strait ties uh, and specifically, you know, give more opportunities for interaction between uh, people from both sides of the Taiwan Strait. Uh, but it sounds like you're sort of arguing that uh, there's the whole way through, you know, politics has been right there the, uh, the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Ma's cross-strait policy was, was supposedly going to be, you know, first the easy things, then the hard things. First these kinds of cultural exchanges and then, and, and then these kinds of harder political questions. But and I think, I think the, the moral of that story really is that there is no easy thing when you've got these overarching incompatible geopolitical conflicts. Uh, and, and when those things aren't resolved, these other kinds of soft power measures uh, can can go in very unpredictable directions. Um, you know, I also learned while doing research on this uh, and, and talking with Chinese scholars as well that a lot of the, the scholars and critics that were suggesting that they were promoting tourism as a way of reconciliation were also coming from very strong ideological perspectives. Uh, people in China were very clear that if you wanted to collaborate with them, uh, you had to also support unification or annexation of Taiwan uh, with China. Uh, so you know, the people that were promoting this kind of narrative also had their own agenda. Uh, and I think that was then taken by politicians uh, and also by industry leaders uh, and used for their own, I think, not entirely honest ends. Now, let's lay out uh, for folks that haven't really been following this sort of news uh, what exactly it is about uh, the cross-strait tourism industry that uh, many who you know were hoping for economic gains for Taiwan would see as problematic? Why is this not paying off uh, for Taiwan industry uh, in the way that many expected? Sure. So what's happened in Taiwan is pretty similar to what happened in China in general with tourism uh, or, or in Hong Kong or in other places where group tourists uh, are run by, by large companies that are diversified. Uh, these, these happen to, to be tour operators that also have commonly interest in hotels, in shopping stops, in restaurants. Um, so what's happened in Taiwan is similar to what's happened in China, where you have a tour company that has uh, special relationships or perhaps partial ownership or investment with not only the bus, the bus company and so on, but also the, the hotels, uh, the shopping shops, the restaurants, and everywhere that the tourist is going. So what happens when a Chinese tourist flies out from Shanghai or Dalian or something else is they, you know, they, they fly over to Taiwan, 
they get on their bus, they go stay in a hotel, they get back on their bus, they go to a site that's, that's very cheap or very, you know, often free. Um, so whatever money would be spent that might go into Taiwan is, is cut as much as possible to make time for the tourist to then go to a commission-based shop uh, and buy, you know, often junk, often junk that's actually made in China. Um, this is how the tour guide and the driver makes money is, is off the shopping because the tour itself is quite, quite low priced. So the tour, drive, the, the tour guide and the driver have these incentives to actually provide fairly poor quality service because their goal is to make money off of tourist shopping. So that money even then is often not kept in Taiwan because it's owned by these kinds of monopoly cartels that often are probably invested uh, from Hong Kong and from China uh, into Taiwan. So the money that's being spent here is often siphoned back away. It's, it's really hard to actually find a clear accounting of how much money that's spent in Taiwan uh, stays in Taiwan, or even to actually know how much money is spent in Taiwan entirely. Because whatever statistics we do have, the ones that the government had been citing for the last eight years, were entirely based on what the tourists said that they'd spent. Uh, in, in one survey, it's the airport on their way out. No one's been doing any auditing on the taxes or otherwise uh, from hotels, from tour companies, and so on. So we really don't have a clear figure of how much money has been spent here. But what we do know from talking to tourism industry people, from representatives, from hoteliers, and so on, uh, is that there seems to be a large penetration of Chinese and Hong Kong capital in the Taiwan market. Uh, so the profits that are being made here aren't really staying here. And meanwhile, the kinds of uh, knock-off, the knock-on costs in terms of uh, increased road maintenance, uh, site maintenance, and so on, for, for sites that really everyone in Taiwan should have the ability to enjoy, those costs are being passed on to the Taiwanese taxpayer. Mm. Nevertheless, though, uh, there are certainly uh, some local Taiwanese businesses that have gotten at least some sort of a bump uh, from this industry. Uh, are, I, I mean, I, I'm, certainly this is not going to be uh, a, a, a widespread hit, but uh, with mainland tourism numbers going down, will there not be some businesses that will suffer as a result? Uh, yes, Keith, that's absolutely true and, and a, a good point to bring up. Um, you know, for... For every tour that's cut, that's one more guide who doesn't have a job for those six or eight days that the tour would be here. Uh, that's one more driver without a job. That's, uh, that's one more restaurant that isn't, you know, may have investment from outside Taiwan, but certainly does employ wait staff uh, in many cases from Taiwan. So those people will be hit, uh, and those people will, will not be happy about what's happening and are quite likely to then add pressure to the new administration, which I think is precisely what's, what's driving these kinds of cuts. So there will be that kind of effect. Its overall effect on the economy is going to be limited because Taiwan's economy still isn't that reliant on tourism. But certainly there will be a, a, a wide variety of people affected by this. Mm. And of course, you know, the tour groups are not the only kind of uh, tourism that's coming from China. Uh, there are also individual uh, tourists. Do we have any sense that uh, that will make up some of the loss uh, of, of, of the group tours? Or are these numbers just so squishy that it's really hard to tell what's going on at all? It's, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, there still is much more group tourism than independent tourism. And in the last few months, group tourism has dropped while independent tourism has, has seemed to rise. But I, I doubt some of those numbers. Um, I, I've seen myself recently while traveling back into Taiwan that people who were clearly in group tours, they were following tour guides with flags, had permits saying independent traveler, saying independent tourist, which, which to me suggests that the, the tour agency was having trouble getting a group permit because of these Chinese cuts, and so they, they applied for an independent permit. And this can be done for, 
for tourists from some cities, generally from richer cities or, and tourists who can pay deposits and so forth. So it makes me wonder about many of, of those numbers, how accurate they are. But in any event, I don't think uh, even, even with that growth in independent tourists, which is dubious to begin with, I don't think it's going to make up for the numbers of group tourists that are coming down. On the bright side, though, independent tourists do seem to spend more money that stays in Taiwan longer because they, they spend in a wider variety of places. It's on a less circumscribed route. Uh, it, it tends to evade these kinds of cartels that have overtaken group tourism. So, you know, perhaps there's a silver lining there uh, and that, the, you know, it's possible that independent tourists from China will actually be more eager to come to Taiwan now if they feel like they can have a, a more relaxed experience away from the buses. I don't oh. expect those numbers to really compensate, though, for the, for the losses to the more managed tourism anytime soon. Mm. Now, when you talk about kind of a, a reassessment of the industry, uh, perhaps a reorientation of the industry, what is that likely to look like? I mean, are, are, we, we've already heard, you know, some examples of, uh, you know, uh, business owners, hotel owners saying that they are not interested in serving uh, Chinese tour groups. Are, are, are we expecting to see more of that, you know, and, and even spread to uh, government agencies that oversee tourism as encouraging uh, a reorientation away from uh, Chinese tourism and towards, uh, you know, serving other countries? Uh, I, I think we can we can hope for Two, perhaps two different kinds of reorientations. One is a geographical reorientation. So yes, one is, is away from, from China and towards other countries. And so that was hinted at by some of these hoteliers. And it was also spoken to by, by the president herself in a recent interview with the Washington Post, uh, who suggested that other tourists might help compensate for the, for the losses from the China sector. So that's one possible reorientation. And the second one is a reorientation away from group tourism and towards independent tourism. And this is not a new idea. This is something that people in Taiwan have been talking about for the last several years, uh, following so many disappointing stories about Chinese group tourists. You know, Taiwan has so many resources to offer to tourists, you know, be it uh, mountain climbing, uh, cycling, uh, water sports, and so on. And these are things that often lend themselves to smaller, more curated tour, independent tour experiences. Um, so... If Taiwan were to reorient in that way, I think really everyone could win, the tourists as well as the Taiwan industry. And the last uh, subject that I kind of want to broach with you is, I, I think a lot of us really find this idea of person-to-person, uh, -person, uh, you know, individuals across the strait getting to know each other. We find this idea very appealing. Uh, are we losing something here uh, with these uh, group tours going away, or, or, or is there something to replace it with? I mean, is there, is there some way to keep some kind of getting-to-know-you uh, ebb and flow of people interaction, uh, keep that around? Sure. So the independent tourists who have a chance to get off the tourist trail and, and go to places like Hualien or Yilan or other parts of Taiwan where they actually have interactions on the street uh, or even in their guest houses with Taiwanese you know, for more than a couple minutes, I think these people are often having meaningful engagement. You know, they, they go back to China with maybe a slightly different understanding of, of what Taiwan was. But for the vast majority of group tourists, they, they get on the bus, they get off the bus, they go shopping, they go eating. The, the, the time to actually interact with someone besides their tour guide uh, or their hotel check-in clerk is so limited that, that any kind of meaningful interaction, any kind of meaningful relationship uh, is hard to develop. Uh, I say this having traveled, for example, with an eight-day group from Shanghai. Uh, we got off the bus, got on the bus, went shopping. None of those people that I was with uh, from Shanghai, from Jiangsu, from other places, 
uh, got the contact information of anyone in Taiwan. None of them built any kind of friendship that was going to last. They took a few photos. They made a few impressions of Taiwan. You know, generally thought, oh, Taiwanese people were nice, clean, civilized, and so on. But there was no real potential to develop or deepen that relationship. So taking out group tourism, I think, given that it wasn't really engendering these kinds of meaningful relationships, having, having less of it is not going to make much of a difference anyway to that, kind of, to that kind of situation. That having been said, the more independent tourism that comes here and the better prepared they are and the better taken care of they are by Taiwan, there might be some potential for some meaningful, meaningful exchange later. Right, and that once again was Dr. Ian Rowan of Academia Sinica discussing the cross-strait tourism industry. All right, so uh, I think that we have completely taxed our listeners' patience with serious stories. <laughs> Gavin, um, we miss you, Gavin. Yeah, exa- well, <laughs> he does. Uh, he he brings a certain amount of punchiness to That's the right. whole to the whole affair. Uh, but uh, we're going to round out our show, our podcast, as we always do with our podcast bonus story, which we uh, prefer to keep on the lighter side. Uh, and uh, we're going to start today with a new word. We're adding a word to your vocabulary. Oh, Have you heard the word nomophobia? Nomophobia. Mm. Fear of a town in Alaska? No. No mo of that. No, in fact, uh, <laughs> if, we, if we split it apart, it is... No mobile phone phobia or the fear of being separated from your mobile phone. Where is my mobile phone? Yeah. <laughs> well, you got, you, you, you <laughs> got your tablet, tablet right in front of you. Okay. That'll, that'll, that'll tide you over. <laughs> uh, so apparently, uh, this is a fear, this, this kind of separation anxiety, technological separation anxiety, uh, is shared widely around the world. Uh, we've uh, heard reports uh, on it in many different places, especially in Asia. This is where uh, a lot of these sorts of reports seem to pop up. Uh, of course, uh, Asian countries such as South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, all are known for their very high Internet penetration rates, high many kinds of technology penetration rates. Taiwan is no exception to this nomophobia fad, and the Ministry of Labor uh, has recently put some numbers to it because I guess that's what they're funded to do. According to their poll recently released earlier this week, a total of 57.1% of surveyed workers uh, became anxious or worried if they did not use their mobile phones uh, over a certain period of time. Uh, So I I tried to get comparable numbers from other countries to get a sense of how this all stacks up. The best thing I could find was from a psychological magazine in the U.S. that gave some numbers for the U.K., they said in the UK, about 40% of people uh, got this sort of separation anxiety. So, if we are to take any of these numbers seriously, and I'm not sure we should, but if we are, for the sake of this conversation, Taiwan is a little bit ahead of the pack there. Um, here is the breakdown for Taiwan. They actually broke down to see how long people could go without their phone. Uh, of the people that say that they get phone anxiety... start experiencing that anxiety after 12 uh, 12 hours. It's kind of a long time to go, I think. That's that's the lowest category. That's reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's okay to start getting cold sweats after 12 hours. 12 hours, that's right. All right, fair enough. Uh, 15% could go between 13 and 24 hours. 8.1%, one to three days. Uh, Only 4% said that they could make it three days before their anxiety started uh, slipping in. And then, of course, there's the 33% that apparently don't care at all. 
Uh, so let's uh, let's first find out. We have a Taiwan resident in the studio with us right now. Uh, are 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 you a, an afflicted member of this subgroup, or do you suffer from nomophobia? Terribly, terribly. Actually, I think there's only one group of Taiwanese, but they divide into two parts: those who are using their mobile phone mm-hmm. and those who are taking a nap. Right, exactly. So those forty three percent were napping when the when the survey guys came. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, I tried to reflect on: uh, Am I a sufferer of nomophobia? And I couldn't think of a time where I didn't have my phone with me. Exactly. The only time I could think of was when I take plane flights. That's literally the only time where I am ever truly separated from my phone. And what's the first thing I do when I get on uh, dry land, hard land? Turn on the phone. Turn on my phone. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't even know if if, if I would feel anxiety because I've never tested the theory. I, I'm not I don't want to sure. find out. It's too traumatic. <laughs> I'm afraid of even finding out. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, you, 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 you uh, among your many pursuits in Taiwan, you also uh, are a, a teacher. Yeah. Do, do your students, is that a problem in your classroom, the addiction to the phone? It's a running joke, actually. I tell my students, someday I'm just going to have a heart attack and die in front of you, and you're all going to look up in from your phones and say, where did that noise go? <laughs> <laughs> and some of them will probably be uh, Instagramming it oh, that's and, right. and Snapchatting like, it. They'll be like selfies with the dead teacher kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how we get grim. All right. <laughs> Great. On that note, on that uh, on that lovely image that uh, will be in a in a Snapchat stream near you someday soon, uh, we will leave it there. That is it for the show today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the eight p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM one hundred. Generally starting between eight fifteen eight twenty, depending on the commercial load. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, uh, or occasionally the ICRT blog, uh, if I have time for it. Lost some of my intern manpower that I was depending on. (laughs) Neither here nor there. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Michael Turton. Michael, good to have you here. I'm sorry, what? Where's my phone? <laughs> my phone. <laughs> Don't you can be strong. Be st- be strong. It'll be we'll get through this together. <laughs> Thank you for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan this week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8:30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.